Good evening, and welcome to the audio diary of Aaron Lockman, and welcome more specifically to my mini-series Unreviewable, in which I attempt to review things that are probably best left unreviewed on a five-star scale. In today's episode, I will be reviewing Romantic Longing. I remember with perfect clarity the moment when I didn't get cast as the Phantom in my high school's production of Phantom of the Opera. I was 16, and was seated at a dimly lit restaurant with a large group of theater geek friends. We had all auditioned just that afternoon, and if I recall correctly, somebody's rich parent was paying for all our meals in celebration, a practice which seems bizarre in retrospect. But anyway, we were all carefully watching our phones, waiting for somebody to take a picture of the cast list and post it on the Theater Geek Facebook page, and as, slowly, the roles came rolling in, some rather predictable things happened. Firstly, I was cast as the plucky, middle-aged comic relief character, and of course the handsome, tall, and perfect boy over whom all the girls fawned, and who would later turn out to be very gay indeed, was cast as the Phantom. I remember that my best friend Forrest, who would be playing the other comedy relief character alongside me, was quite psyched about the decision, and eager to talk with me about all the hilarious shit we were going to pull off together. But I, in my silent, crestfallen reverie, did not want to speak. Mostly, I wanted to go home, be by myself, and possibly sink into the floor. Later that night, I crept out of bed and went outside to the cigarette-drenched porch outside my mom's apartment, and I cried. I don't recall exactly why I had to go outside to do this. When you're a teenager, your emotions run so red and hot and heavy within you that sometimes only the bizarrest of actions seem logical as you try to quell the raging beast. As I cried, I remember thinking, why can't I have this one thing? Why can't I just have this one thing that will make me happy? The funny thing is, of course, that I wasn't even referring to the role of the Phantom. I was referring, of course, to the girl over whom I was nursing an obsessive crush, and had been for over a year. The funny thing was, she hadn't even gotten the female lead, and was instead playing a secondary comic relief character, just like me. But the thing is, in studying Phantom of the Opera, I had grown to see myself as the Phantom, the tortured artist struggling over the love of a beautiful woman, his angel of music, the only soul who could sing his songs so perfectly, and, yeah, blech. It all seems rather gauche to me now, of course. I recently listened to an NPR interview with Andrew Lloyd Webber, in which he states, I don't think a great score can save a bad plot. Which I found hilarious, because that's exactly what I'd say if I had to sum up his career in ten words. Bit of a controversial opinion coming up. The Phantom of the Opera is a beautifully scored shitpile of misogynistic tripe, and the much-maligned sequel, Love Never Dies, is actually better, not because it is less misogynistic or better written, but because it actually seems to accept and embrace its own shittiness. Love Never Dies is more enjoyable to watch than Phantom because it makes these terrible, terrible characters face actual consequences for their actions, as if they've been plucked out of their flawless, sequined Broadway fantasy and dropped into an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But I'm getting off track. 
The point is, when I first experienced the story of Phantom of the Opera in high school, I connected with the Phantom because he too nursed an obsessive crush. And his obsessive crush was beautiful. It was expressed in the most beautiful music, over the course of two hours of fantastical spectacles and crashing chandeliers. And while the story is very careful to frame the Phantom as the villain, it focuses mostly on his methods. His love for Christine is framed as something entirely separate from the fact that he murders people in order to get her attention. This romanticizing of the obsessive crush, even in a villainous character, is dangerous. It is the kind of sentiment that, at best, causes nerdy little teenage boys like me to think that obsessing over the same girl for years on end, even though she has repeatedly said no, is not just healthy, but actually inspiring. And at worst, it is a sentiment which causes certain people in the press to publish think pieces about how maybe this school shooter wouldn't have shot up that school if the girl he was stalking hadn't rejected or embarrassed him. This trope isn't harmful because it's in Phantom of the Opera. It is harmful because it is everywhere. Now, I have been speaking in gendered terms for most of this review, but the truth is this pervasive idea of obsessive longing being beautiful ultimately has very little to do with gender, and it did not go away after I figured out I was bisexual. One thing I've been discussing with my therapist recently is my tendency to cast myself as the piner. I take a certain solace in being the one who pines, the one who is always a little too sad and removed to talk about his personal life. I cling to that identity because it's comforting, because in a movie that character is always the hero, because it's what I've always done. Even as my opinions on Phantom of the Opera morphed, my identity did not. It just got sneakier. When it could no longer cling to misogyny, it clung to other things. And yeah, I'm being deliberately vague now because we are moving into dangerously recent territory. The point is, romantic longing is something that seems to work really well on paper. There's something rustic and dark and velvet about it. Even the word sounds nice. Longing. But in terms of results, in terms of actually getting me someplace in life that I really needed to go, jack shit. And so, I'm trying to move past it. I give Romantic Longing one out of five stars. Next time, on the final episode of Unreviewable, we are going to review lazily disguised autobiographies. What even is that? Why am I reviewing it? Will there ever be more episodes of Unreviewable, or will we just have to shamble meaninglessly through our empty lives without the best podcast ever to listen to? Answers, and more, next week. <laughs>